This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg The Zohar says that today the studying of Torah refers to as the tree of knowledge, the revealed part of the Torah, versus the Torah that we're going to be learning when Mashiach will come, which he calls the tree of life. So he explained, every bit of Torah is the tree of life. Eitz Chaim He. The difference is, the world will change. Today, the world receives its sustenance from the tree of Knowledge, which is a mixture of good and evil and that's why the world is so confusing and, and there's so much conf inner confusion and conflict and darkness and you have to sift through and you have to separate and differentiate and clarify and, and that engages most of our that's most of our learning today most of our learning today is working through the difficulties, the questions, and the obstacles to clarity, and to clarify, and that was the purpose of studying Torah. The main purpose of studying Torah was to weaken the negative energy, weaken the negative forces by working through all the questions, and working through all the difficulties, and clarifying, and by the rabbis breaking their heads, and learning Torah being fully engaged and learning Torah, the revealed part of the Torah, to clarify the halacha and clarify all the difficult passages in the Talmud and, and uh, making it crystal clear, that's how you break. That's the effect and impact you have in the world. That You also bring clarity to the world and you penetrate the darkness and you're able to... That's the purpose behind studying Torah. But that's all true until Mashiach comes. Once Mashiach will come, the world will be redeemed and the whole world will be receiving its sustenance from the tree of life. So there will be clarity. So then you won't need to deal with the negative energy and negative forces. So what will be our service of Hashem then? What will be the purpose of studying Torah then? The purpose of studying Torah then won't be to deal with negativity. Yes, we're going to work hard in studying Torah. That won't change. Studying Torah will always fully engage our mind and fully engage us. And when Mashiach will come, we'll, we'll begin to study Torah. Everything we learned till now will be nothing in comparison to the Torah that we're going to be learning when Mashiach will come. As the Medrash says, it's hevel. It's like nothing. Insignificant. Imagine 3,300 years of studying Torah, 3,329 uh, years to be precise. And yet it's all nothing in comparison 
to the Torah that we're going to learn and we're going to be studying Moshiach Hukam. But nevertheless, the effort and the sweat and the toil we're going to be in, that we'll experience studying Torah won't be, we won't have to deal with any negativity. There won't be questions. There won't be negative, negative energy, darkness, confusion, crookedness, distortions. Our entire effort will be to grow from one level to the next level. Because Torah is infinite. Torah is divine. It's God's mind. God is infinite. So whatever we understand, it's nothing in comparison to what there is to be to understand. So we'll grow from positive to even greater level, from strength to strength. So therefore, the purpose of studying Torah won't be this tree of knowledge. You won't have to deal with the tree of knowledge anymore. You won't have to deal with any confusion and chaos and negativity. And the entire engagement will be in the tree of life. It will be to grow from one level of godliness to another level of godliness, to grow from, one, from, from level to level. So that, that's what he's explaining now. So that's what he means. When Mashiach will come, the Torah scholars will receive their life sustenance from the tree of life. That they won't have to deal anymore with the, with the negativity. So the whole engagement and occupation will be the inner parts of the Torah. The mystical, the secret, secret. As Maimonides says, in Halach, the very end of his magnum opus, says Mashiach will come, the main occupation of the world will be exclusively the pursuit of the knowledge of Hashem to the maximum that humanly possible. And he doesn't say it in a positive sense that the engagement of the world will be the pursuit of knowledge. He says it in the, neg- in the negative, like the, the pursuit of the of main occupation of the world will be only exclusively nothing but the knowledge of Hashem, and then he adds bilvad exclusively. So the Rebbe explained, what's my man that he's saying? First, he should have said in the positive. Why does he say the world will not be engaged only nothing but exclusively Bilvad, why this tremendous emphasis? So Maimonides is coming to explain in halachic terms, in simple terms. The Mashiach will come. We will not be studying the revealed part of the Torah. The knowledge of God, which is the knowledge of the Kabbalah, the mystical of the Hasidus. Not the Talmud, the revealed part of the Torah. That's he says, Bilvad, exclusive. Yes, you're going to have to learn, as Dr. Rebbe pointed out. Of course, you're going to have to know all the laws and all the rules. But ASIC, engagement, fully engaged and occupied, won't be necessary. How are you going to know all the rules and laws, halachat, all the details of all the mitzvot if you don't learn and study? So as Alter Rebbe is going to say, either by learning it once, you'll know it. You'll, there won't be any forgetfulness. You'll learn it once and it'll, it'll be registered and that's it. You'll know it. 
Can you imagine? Halavai, <laughs> huh? We can't wait for Mashiach to come. We want Mashiach now, <laughs> yesterday. You learn it once, and it's here. You have it for the rest of your life. There's no need to learn it, repeat it, and engage, and delve into it, and engage in it. And then he says, even more so, it says that Avram Avinu knew the whole Torah before it was given. How did Abraham know the whole Torah before it was given? He, had, he didn't have a Talmud. He didn't have all the books that we have. But he knew it naturally, instinctively. Because if you know, if you know everything at the source, this, if you know its spiritual root and source, from it you can understand already the halach. But actually a Kabbalist who wrote the code of Jewish law according to Kabbalah. He takes every single halacha in the code of Jewish law and he explains what it means Kabbalistically. Because the Torah is a body and a soul. And they totally parallel each other. They're really one and inseparable. The eye. The eye is a perfect expression of the soul's ability to see. Every organ in the body perfectly matches the soul, the energy, the brain, and the three brains, the right brain, creative mind, matches the creative ability, wisdom. The left brain matches the analytical ability. The limbic brain matches the ability to decide, conviction, choose, which is that. So every part in the body perfect, is a perfect expression, parallel, matches perfectly its spiritual counterpart. The energy that perfectly fits it and matches it and is enclosed in it. So the, the body of the Torah, every halacha in the Torah is a parallels and perfectly matches the soul of the Torah. That's why the Vilna Goin said, anyone who doesn't know the root and source of every halacha in Kabbalah can't, is not allowed to give a halachic verdict because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because unless you know the inner, the soul of the Torah, you really don't know the revealed part of the Torah because they go hand in hand. It's a body and soul. You can't separate the body from the soul. If you separate the body from the soul, you have a corpse. You have neither body nor soul. So Mashiach will come when you're so in tune with the soul of the Torah. Automatically, you'll understand the halach. By understanding the root and the source and seeing it in the root and the source, automatically you'll understand its manifestation without even delving into it, without engaging in it or studying it. You'll know it. See a beautiful story with the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe was once washing for the meal and his younger brother comes in all excited comes rushing in tells his brother that uh, science just discovered that there's a vein in the brain that that when a person wants to you know you want to think about something very deeply what do you do? When you're concentrating very deeply, what do you do? You bend, you bow your head. When you want to remember something, you pick up your head, lift up your head. You're trying to remember, right? That's what most people lift up their head trying to remember. When you're trying to think deeply, you you bow your head and you're trying to... He says, why? He says, because when you go, when you're trying to concentrate and focus, you're you're accessing your, your limbic brain. The das, the ability to focus and to concentrate. So you bend your head and the 
the vein tilts towards that brain. So you're accessing that brain. When you're trying to remember, you're trying to access your creative mind. That's where the memories are stored. So you lift up your head. So the, uh, he's all excited by this breakthrough that science discovered. The Rebbe just finished watching. He couldn't speak. So he pointed with his finger, wait, just wait a minute. Well, I'll make hamoitzi. He made hamoitzi on the bread. He went over to the bookshelf, took out a Hasidic discourse in handwriting, handwritten by the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, which is a hundred years before that, their time. And in it, he describes this vein. <laughs> it was a hundred years before science, science even knew about it. So the, the brother, younger brother says, wow, I didn't know that our Elta Zaidi, our great-grandfather was such a great scientist. <laughs> The Rabbi, the Rabbi Rashab says, no, he wasn't a scientist. But he saw the way it was in heaven, above, in the divine. We are a manifestation of the divine. We are just a reflection of the divine. We are a microcosm of the whole universe. Anything that exists over there exists within us. So he knew from the Kabbalah, from the source, he saw it in the divine. So he understood that we have it. That's also manifests itself physically. So everything in the world is just a manifestation. The physical is a manifestation of the spiritual. So too, every halacha is a manifestation, an expression, a physical halacha. The body of the Torah is a manifestation of the soul of the Torah. So if you know and you master the soul of the Torah, you understand already the body of the Torah. So every halacha, the fact that in shechita you have five things that disqualify a shechita, because it all, it's all connected to the root and the source, what shechita means in heaven, what shechita means, what slaughtering means in the divine, and you have five different ways. It, everything is really, you know, it's the Shalah Kaddish. The Torah speaks, people think that the Torah speaks in this world, but it hints to deeper truths. It's just the opposite. The Torah speaks about deeper truths, and it hints to the physical. The physical is just a manifestation of what the Torah is really talking about. The Torah is really talking about the divine, the spiritual, the upper realms. And it manifests itself in the simple stories and the Torah and the characters and the personality. But the physical is just a symptom. So Mashiach will come. When everything will become clear, then everything will be the opposite. Our main focus and concentration exclusively is the Maimonides adds. No, it won't be nothing other but the inner parts of the Torah exclusively. We won't even be engaged. Either you learn it once and you'll know it and you won't even have to spend time in it. Or by learning in the soul, the soul of the Torah, you'll automatically understand all the laws and all the physical manifestations of, of the Torah. So the Torah that we studied today and the Torah that we're going to study in Mashiach will come, it's an entirely different, different purpose. Now the main purpose of the Torah is to weaken the negative energy, to sift, to clarify, to separate. And that's why we toil through all the questions and all the difficulties. And the main occupation, including by all the great mystics, was learning the Talmud and learning the Halacha and learning all the revealed parts of the Torah. Mashiach will come. Not only the main occupation, the only occupation, nothing other but the secrets of the Torah, the inner, the esoteric, the mystical, exclusively.
which explains also why Maimonides writes in the beginning of his magnum opus. He refers to, Talmud says that Hillel had 80 students. The greatest of them was, he was so holy that when he studied Torah, the birds that were passed by above him would burn. They would become extinct. They died. It was too holy. (laughs) Someone who has no connection to the esoteric part of the Torah wanted to know if the rabbi is responsible to pay for the (laughs) 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 That's what he got out of the Gemara. (laughs) Is he responsible or not responsible? Okay. Okay. (laughs) Who was the youngest of the students? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh, the leader of his generation, he was the youngest. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh, the Talmud describes, was engaged in, he didn't abandon a great thing, and even a small thing, he was engaged in the greatest thing, which is Meiser Merkava, which talks about the Kabbalah, and the esoteric, and the mystical parts of the Torah. And the small things, the Talmudic discussion, so my mother is, reads it literally. That this, this is the small things. The great things is the esoteric. What was the small thing? The small thing, he said, were the Talmudic discussions. It's called to Avayas Dabaya Virava. So my mother says that knowing the esoteric knowing about the chariots, esoteric, that's great. The whole study of Talmud, all the discussions in the Talmud and the whole study of Talmud, in comparison to the esoteric, it's a small thing. It's insignificant. The Kesef Mishnah, Rabbi Yosef Karo, writes about the Rambam, very sharp, says, Halavai, my manaris never wrote this. How could you say such a statement? How could you call the Talmud nothing, a small thing? This is the whole Talmud. This is what engaged all the minds of the rabbis. He says, my manaris didn't understand what the Talmud is saying. My manaris, the Talmud is saying that the rabbis were so great, the authors of the Mishnah were so great, that they didn't need the discussions of Abayavarav. The Talmud is very long, and every Mishnah, one paragraph of Mishnah, you can have 20 pages of Talmud describing and explaining the Mishnah, and the Talmud is confused and trying to understand and trying to get to understand clearly every word. The Talmudic rabbi is the author of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He, They had such clarity that they, all these discussions were nothing to them. The Talmud is specific. The discussions of Abayi Verov. What do you mean discussions of Abayi Verov? Abayi Verov were Meroim. They lived much later than Abayi Yochanan ben Zakeh. Abayi Yochanan ben Zakeh did not engage in the discussions of Abayi Verov. So Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Kesem Mishnah, that's exactly what Talmud is saying. That the someone like Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh, the early Tanoim, that was so great, they, all these lengthy discussions, to them it was a small thing because it was not necessary for them. For them the Mishnah was so clear. But God forbid to refer to the Talmud and the Mishnah and the whole revealed part of the Torah as something insignificant. And he says, Halavai, my Manaris would, ne- would never write it because how could you say such a thing? Very sharp. But my Manaris does write it. That's exactly what he says. That's exactly how he learns the Talmud. 
The Talmud is referring to the discussions of the Talmud. You refer to as Abayas the Bayev and Rava because you always have Abayah and Rava, these two great rabbis going back and forth and arguing. So refer to all the discussions of the Talmud as Abayas the Bayev and Rava. And the Talmud is telling us very clearly. And that's how Maimonides understood it. That all the discussions of the Talmud, all the Talmudic discussions, all these deep discussions and the whole study of Allah and, and the Talmud, in comparison to knowing Hashem and knowing the esoteric and knowing the chariot and knowing the Kabbalah, it's insignificant. It's a small thing. And that's why he says at the end of the book, that's why he writes right at the beginning of his magnum opus, the 14 books. What does he write at the end? Literally at the very end, what's going to be, just to prove and to highlight this point, because what's going to be, he says it very emphatically, that the whole occupation of the world, Jew as well as non-Jew, will be nothing other, he doesn't say will be in the positive sense, but he says nothing other but the study of the esoteric. Exclusively, he adds, exclusively. We won't even be studying, not only we won't be doing business, and our whole day will be occupied in studying Torah. But within Torah itself, exclusively the esoteric. We won't even, won't even bother with, won't even pay attention, we won't even bother with the study of the Talmud. Of course, you have to know the halacha. So you learn it once and you'll know it. But it won't engage you your whole life, like today. Today, our whole life is engaged in the study of the Talmud. Most of our life, even the greatest mystic, Rabbi Shimon Bayechai himself, most of his time he spent studying the Talmud. And Allah, the Alter Rebbe himself, probably spent most of his time studying Talmud. Probably all the Rebbe's. That's how they set up. Two-thirds. That's how they set up the yeshiva. Two-thirds during the week. Two-thirds you'll study Talmud. And one-third of the day you study Hasidut. On Shabbat, on holidays, it's the reverse. Every day you study Talmud. But two-thirds you study Hasidut and Shabbat. And one-third one of the day you spend studying Talmud. Mashiach will come, the main occupation will be exclusively nothing other, exclusively then studying the esoteric. Because either you'll learn it once and you'll know it, or when you know the esoteric and you know the root at the source, automatically you'll know. It's a beautiful story. The Alter Rebbe's colleague, Rabbi Zusha of Anapol, who was a Jew in his time, his father died. And he had a very disturbing dream. That his father came to him in his dream and told him, you must convert to Christianity. <laughs> his father was pious. His father was a shulgoer three times a day. He just buried his father and his father is coming to him every night. You must convert to Christianity. He was so disturbed. So he ran, he ran to the Rebbe, Rabbi Zushiv Anapol, the Rebbe, help me, what's going on here? So the Rebbe said... You know what happened? Check in his grave. Probably a cross fell into his grave. One of the diggers, <laughs> one of the goyim, they were preparing the grave. It was probably his Salem, his cross fell into the grave, and that's why he can't rest. That's exactly what happened. They dug up the grave and they found a cross in his grave. They removed the grave, that's the cross, and he was good for the rest of his life. No problem. His father stopped bothering. The story got to the Vilna Goyim. <laughs> The story got to the Vilna Goyen. The Vilna Goyen says, I'm shocked. I'm surprised. 
that Rabbi Zusha of Annapolis, it's a Jerusalem Talmud. Who studies Jerusalem Talmud? Only the greatest Talmudic geniuses study the Talmudic, the, the Jerusalem Talmud. I'm, I'm surprised Rabbi Zusha Annapolis wasn't known to be, he was known for his piety and his holiness, but he wasn't known to be one of the greatest scholars in Eastern Europe. Not like the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Yitzhak Barditschev, they were like known scholars. But uh, he wasn't known to be a scholar. He was a mystic, he was a holy Jew, but he wasn't such a great scholar. So Rabbi Dilna Goyen says, I'm surprised, how does Rabbi Zusha know about this far-flung uh, Talmudic statement that's, that 99% of Jews don't even know exists? And the word got back to Rabbi Zusha. This is, the, this is what the comment that Rabbi Dilna Goyen said about him. And his response was, you know, he's, tr- he's right. I don't know the Jerusalem Talmud. Be honest, I never learned the Jerusalem Talmud. But I know it from the same source that the Jerusalem Talmud knows it. <laughs> How does the Jerusalem Talmud know it? It's a divine truth. It's a reality. They know it from the source. Well, I also know it from the source. So when you're plugged into the source, you're connected to the source, and you're studying the esoteric, and you're studying the mystical, and the Hasidus, and you get it, you understand then of course you know, you know the halacha and you know, all the, you know the Torah and you know you understand the whole Torah. You don't have to spend time engaging it. You know it automatically. How much more so that you know the world? I think a group of students once asked the Rebbe, how is it possible that the, they say about the, the Lagoyan, he knew so much, he knew all the sciences and you know, and if he spoke to the Rebbe also, any scientist who spoke to the Rebbe, the Rebbe could converse in his language, whether it was a mathematician or was a, any field. The Rebbe could speak to them in the most current, the most up-to-date breakthroughs in science. And he would discuss with scientists. He would discuss with them what's the breakthroughs in the areas. Would spend all, speak to them in their language. How is it possible that you, you, you know all the scientists? I mean... You're a rabbi, you're a rabbi, you're studying Torah, you're not studying. The rabbi answered, because God creates the world with Torah. So if you understand the Torah, if you understand the blueprint, the truth is, you do understand everything. Because Torah is the blueprint for everything. It's the blueprint for math and for science and every skill and music and art. Everything, is, everything comes from the Torah. There is no other reality but the Torah. So if you really understand how thing works in the Torah, how Hashem thinks, if you understand the Creator, you understand how Hashem thinks, you understand the structure of the whole universe. If you understand the chariots, you understand the whole structure, the way Hashem structured the universe and the ten emanations and the four worlds, then you understand exactly how Hashem created the world. You understand everything. You can really understand everything. So when you understand, the deeper you understand the root at the source, not only you understand the world, you also surely understand the body of the Torah. If you understand the soul of the Torah, you understand the body of it. So that's what Alter Rebbe is now going to say here. The above applies nowadays when the Shekhinah is exiled in Oga. Hence the main function of Torah study is to seek out and elevate the sparks of holiness from the Klippa. Hence to the current conservation on the laws of Isra and Hathor Hazel and the like. But when the Shekhinah will emerge from Klippa Noga, or from the Klippa, the action of the sparks will be completed, and the evil Klippa will be separated from the good of holiness, and all the workers of evil will be dispersed, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is 
of Klipanoga and which prevails during the time of exile will no longer be dominant because the good will have departed from it. Klipanoga is influential only by virtue of its minimal component of good. As soon as this is extracted, Klipanoga will have no dominion whatever. Then people will engage in the study of Torah and in the observance of the commandments, not in order to extract the sparks as in the present, but in order to bring about the crimson of Yehudim, unions, or marriages of Svirot, more sublime than those which are affected through our present Torah study, in order to call forth more sublime lights, transcending Aquilus. This is explaining the writings about Isaac Luria, blessed man. So the point will be to elevate even higher, to, to go even higher, to elevate the upper worlds. Right now we are working with the negativity, deal with darkness and but Mashiach will come the whole occupation will be to elevate the heavens, to elevate the upper worlds, to reveal a much deeper unity that even transcends the world of unity, the world of Atsilas, one level of unity to even a higher level of unity and it's infinite You know, it's like, um, it's like faith. You know, yesterday's faith becomes today's understanding, today's comprehension. You know, yesterday you had to take it on faith. It was so, it sounded so beyond anything I can possibly understand, but I take it on faith. And then you mature, and you grow up, and you learn, and you study, and then it, you understand it. It's no longer faith. I can see it. I can make sense. I appreciate it. So then the faith is now on a higher level. You know, so the heaven is always above us. Heaven always remains above us. Because no matter how much we understand and how brilliant and how bright we are and how, how advanced we are and how mature and we grow and we even in leaps and bounds but the heaven is always above us there's always a level that's beyond our comprehension so it's a new heaven we've elevated heaven yesterday's heaven becomes today's earth now it's not heaven anymore i i I have it i internalize it. it makes sense so now i have a new a new heaven a new level that's beyond beyond my understanding. It was a um, Alter Rebbe's mentor, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk. One time in Simchas Torah, he uh, refused to come out to HaKafet. The Hasidim were waiting for him to come out, to dance. Alter Rebbe went into his room and he says, why aren't you coming out? He says, because I see a hundred interpretations, a hundred insights into Atta Haresa Ladas, into the verses of, and, you know, I can't, if I don't, until I internalize it, I can't, I'm not ready to come out. Alter Rebbe says, but, but once you do internalize it, you're going to see another hundred explanations. Every mountain that you climb, you're going to find another mountain. <laughs> and then you're going to, and then you climb that, and, and now you're going to discover a new challenge, and a new mountain, and uh, it goes on forever. So it's not a reason so yes, it's a struggle and there'll be a tremendous effort in learning and mastering and, 
but it will be one mountain, one peak to another peak to another peak instead of dealing with negativity. Right now we have to deal with darkness and negativity. We have to deal with valleys, not mountains. Here you're talking about one mountain to another mountain to another mountain. It's a whole different, a whole different we're operating on a whole, a whole different level. From good to even better. Not like today that we have to deal with negativity and darkness. Everything will be accomplished by means of Nimiyot of the Torah, the esoteric dimension of the Torah, by the performance of the commandments with lofty mystical devotions directed to drawing down sublime lights from the divine luminaries. For the root of the commandments is exceedingly high in the blessed Ein Saf at the level loftier than Absolut. But you have the source of the mitzvah the way it is in Atzilut. Spiritual realm, the way it is in the divine realm of the world of emanation. But then ultimately the mitzvahs are rooted even higher in the infinite itself, Nashem himself, that transcends the whole frame of reference of the universe. So, so there's always room for growth and that we can grow infinitely. As to the statement of our sages of blessed memory that the commandments will be abrogated in the future, this refers to the era of the resurrection of the dead. In the days of the Messiah, however, before the resurrection of the dead, they will not be abrogated. The Talmud says that mitzvot, there won't be any mitzvot. The mitzvot will be abrogated in the future. Now the question is, the question is what does that mean? Firstly, we know that one of the, thir- the 13 principles of faith is that the mitzvot are eternal. Mitzvot will never, ever change. Now the Talmud is telling us there'll be a time when mitzvot will be nullified. There won't be any mitzvot. And so he says, that this is referring to, there's two, there's two different timelines. There's Mashiach. Mashiach that's when, for the very first time, we're going to be able to fulfill all 613 mitzvahs. We never had that opportunity. That's the definition of Mashiach, that for the first time in history, the mitzvah Torah will be implemented. The world will look exactly, the world will become a Torah world, the world will look exactly the way Hashem wanted it to work. We'll have a temple, we'll have a monarchy, all the Jews will be living in Israel, we'll have the expanded Israel, the greater Israel. We'll have the first time in history, we'll have the opportunity to fulfill all 630 mitzvot, and the Goyim will be fulfilling their seven Noahide laws. So that's the peak of mitzvah. Mashiach will come, the whole point of Mashiach is that's the time that we're going to be fulfilling mitzvah. He said the main reward, the main reward is the resurrection and even more so during the, the, the seventh millennium, the year 6,000, as we learned in the first part of the Tan, chapter 36. But the mitzvot will be nullified the times of, of the resurrection. Now, why? Jay, you want to read the note? This differentiation between the performance of mitzvot before and after resurrection follows the view of Tosvot and, and Nida. There, Tosvot explains that the fact that burial shrouds may be made of lion, a forbidden mixture of wool and linen, proves that mitzvot will be abrogated after the resurrection, for otherwise a Jew would, would arise wearing forbidden garments. Right. How are you allowed to bury a Jew? How are the shrouds allowed to be a mixture of kalayim? Yeah. Yes, a dead person is, obviously a dead person is exempt of mitzvot. You're not allowed to do a mitzvah in front of a dead person. When you visit the cemetery, you have to tuck in your tzitzis. Otherwise, it's like laughing at a poor person. 
you, uh, I have mitzvot, you don't, you no longer have any mitzvot, you're dead. But we believe in the resurrection. So he will be resurrected, wearing clothes that are forbidden. So the only explanation is because then it won't matter, because there won't be any mitzvot. In the era of resurrection, there won't be any mitzvot anymore. That's what Tzvi's explain understands. Continue the Rashba. The Rashba cited there in Kudushay Haram. He disagrees, holding that the clothes are abrogated as far as the individual is concerned only while he is deceased. As the Rashba understands the Gemara, they will not be abrogated after the resurrection. That only the person who's dead is no longer obligated to mitzvot. But but uh, when a person comes alive. Mitzvot will never be abrogated. If once you're alive, then you're obligated to do all sorts of stuff. You can't say the error of resurrection, mitzvot won't apply. That's how the Rashman is done. The Rebbe Shlita uses this debate to resolve a seeming contradiction between the two statements followed by the Alter Rebbe. In his note to chapter 36 of Tanya, the Alter Rebbe writes that the time of receiving the reward is essentially in the seventh millennium. Since this is after the time of the resurrection, this is a time during which we are all intended to perform mitzvot. How, then, does the Alter Rebbe state here that mitzvot will be abrogated at the time of the resurrection? The distinction, in the note to chapter 36, the Alter Rebbe follows the view of the Rashbah, who maintains that at the time of the resurrection, mitzvot will continue to be in effect. The Alter Rebbe also follows this view in his Mamar in the Tetzalah, on the phrase, here, before he follows the view of the Postal. And then he says that all the questions that people have are, uh, Alter Rebbe answers that there, there are two different errors. There's the error, the Messianic error, which then, of course, will be obligated to do 630 mitzvot. And then, according to Tosvot, according to one of the medieval rabbis, they, uh, the group of rabbis known as the Bali Taitzvahs, they uh, will, mitzvot will be abrogated beginning with the resurrection. According to the Rajba, however, not only during the Messianic era, but even in the time, in the supernatural time of the resurrection, then we will also be obligated to the mitzvot. And the reward for the mitzvot will actually be at the millennium, at the year, the seventh millennium, at the year 6000, when it says Hashem will destroy the world, it will be a different world. Now, Hasidus explains elsewhere, when it says that the mitzvot will be nullified and Mashiach will come, why is that not in conflict with the idea that mitzvot are eternal? The mitzvot are forever. Okay, so you can say, simply, that the mitzvot are forever for human beings who live naturally. <laughs> a human being who's resurrected is not, his whole being is miraculous. It's not n- natural. All of a sudden, our parents, our grandparents and great grandparents, ancestors are going to rise from the dead, are going to march out of uh, Montefiore and all the other uh, graveyards. Obviously, it's a different, it's a godly reality. So, mitzvot are eternal for human beings. <laughs> but when human beings will no longer be human beings, they're going to be resurrected, they're going to be godly beings, which is resurrected. How, how does someone who's dead suddenly return? Uh, you know, so this is a whole, so, okay, that's on a very simple level you can understand. That doesn't mean the mitzvot are not eternal. The mitzvot are eternal. 
For example, Maimonides says, the mitzvah, you have to wipe out Amalek. What's going to happen after Mashiach will come? There won't be any more Amalek. Yeah, but that's a technicality. We don't have the opportunity to wipe out Amalek. But the mitzvah to wipe out Amalek is eternal. If there is an Amalek, you have an eternal mitzvah to wipe him out. There's no Amalek, so technically I can't do the mitzvah. doesn't mean the mitzvah is not eternal. So the mitzvah are eternal that uh, human beings have to do mitzvah. If, the, if you're no longer a human being, you're resurrected, you're, you're a miraculous being, then okay. So, then, so for that miraculous being, it doesn't apply. But Hasidus explains on a deeper level. The definition of a mitzvah, the definition of a commandment, is only when there's a separation between the commander and the commanded. For example, do you have to command your hand to move? When you want to move your hand, do you have to order, I order you to move? You have to pass a law, <laughs> you have to legislate, command your hand to move, and your hand moves? No, your hand moves automatically. The moment you want to move, your hand automatically moves. So if you command yourself to do something, it's not a commandment. It's you. Your hand is you. What makes a person a king? Could a person be a king over himself? I'm in control. I order my hands to move. My hands are moving. I'm a king. No, you can't be king over yourself. Because you command yourself to do something. You are yourself. If I command someone else to do something and he listens, that makes me into a king. If I command you to move your hand and you move it because I'm commanding you, that makes, that makes the person a king. Because somebody else is listening to me, someone who's not me. If I listen to myself, or even if my own children listen to me, that doesn't make a person a king. If a stranger listens to me, that means I'm a king and he's my subject. So the whole idea of commandment is only applicable when there's a separation between us and Hashem. Hashem is the creator and we're the created and there's a gulf and the, there's worlds apart and yet Hashem commands us and we listen. Look, Hashem tells us to do something and we listen. Hashem tells us don't do something and we listen. As much as we're tempted to, as much as we would like to, Hashem says no is no. That makes Hashem king. When Mashiach will come, not when Mashiach will come, during the era of resurrection, especially during the seventh millennium, the year six out, we're going to become so unified with Hashem that the, the concept of commandment no longer applies. Of course we're going to be doing all 613 mitzvot. Mitzvot are eternal. But it won't be because it's a commandment. It'll be automatic. We'll be so tuned in with Hashem. We'll be so inseparable from Hashem. We'll become completely egoless. Automatically, whatever Hashem wants happens right away. It's, it's like Hashem commanding Himself. It's like Hashem listening to Himself. It no longer has the value of a commandment. You can no longer call it a commandment. Commandment, by definition, means separation. When there's no separation, when we're completely one with Hashem, we become part of Hashem. So whatever Hashem wants automatically is implemented. It goes without saying. Or whatever Hashem wants, immediately it's done. Finished. So there's no, there's, it's not commandment. So of course, it doesn't mean we're gonna, not going to do mitzvah. We're going to do mitzvah, but it won't be a commandment anymore. Because it won't be, he won't be able to say a command. Who is commanding me? I am one with Hashem. Whatever Hashem wants automatically gets done. And I will do it immediately and 100% and without the question. And 
So that's on the deepest level what it means that the mitzvot won't, will be betelis. Mitzvot, the idea of a mitzvah, of a commandment, that will be completely nullified. It won't even be, you won't even be able to use that terminology. It won't be the same idea of a commandment. It will be automatic. But anyway, getting back to our discussion here, so that's what he says, that Mashiach will come, we will do mitzvot, and we will study Torah. We're talking about the Messianic era. But the whole engagement and occupation of the mitzvah in studying Torah will be to elevate the heavens, to go a higher level of unity, beyond the level of unity of the world of unity, the divine world of unity, the world of emanation, to elevate it to the infinite and was the infinite, infinite elevations and infinite levels. So it will be from good to even better, from one mountain peak to the next mountain peak to the next mountain peak, forever and ever. And then there's the resurrection. That's a whole different, a whole different uh, discussion. At that time, the observance of mitzvot will draw down to this world even higher levels of godliness than those drawn down by the current observance of mitzvot. Right now, the mitzvah is more, we have to <coughs> fight and overcome the negative. And it's about the discipline, and it's about the... Mashiach will come, the mitzvah will all be about godly, about the divine, drawing down godliness, and drawing down even higher levels of godliness. This is why Torah study will then be mainly directed to the nimiyot, the innermost mystical depths of the commandments and their hidden reasons. Specifically, gaining insights into the dynamics of the above-mentioned and therefore understanding why the scrupulous performance of the commandments brings about these supernal unions which give birth to renewed diffusions of the divine light that animates this world. The revealed aspects of Torah, however, will be manifest and known to every Jew by an innate and unforgotten knowledge. Review will thus be unnecessary. You'll learn it once and you'll know it. You'll retain it. Perfect retention. Perfect recall. Sounds good. You know, the rabbis are going to have a very hard time. <laughs> you give one sermon, that's it. You'll never be able to repeat. <laughs> the jokes also. Here he says, I'll do the Torah. Maybe the jokes. You know, they say, uh, a rabbi, you could, um, a good story you can repeat once a year. A good joke once in three years. A Devar Torah, you can repeat it in the same sermon because no one heard you the first time. <laughs> but imagine a world where everyone retains instant recall. We're really going to have to earn our, our living. <laughs> Only the mixed multitude and not the Jews will have to toil in these aspects of the Torah because they will not have merited to taste from the tree of life, i.e. the, uh, the Torah and of the commandments. So he says, this only refers to the Torah scholars. Or the, but, but there will be the earthy people, those who don't have the merit, those who did not study the inner parts of the Torah in the time of exile, and those who are very square, the whole relationship to Yiddishkeit and Torah, very mechanical, very technical. And the truth is, it's a very dark place. It's very sad to see. Jews who are religious, who are observant, go through the trouble, are committed, and yet in a very dark place. There's no love. There's no passion. There's no life. It's like the Yiddish kind of stilted. You walk into shul, everything is stilted. Everything is dead. Everything is 
heavy, everything is, it's not alive. There's no vitality, there's no energy, there's no oomph. Everything is like bitter, negative. Oh, Yiddishkeit is like a burden, a pain in the neck. It's like paying income taxes, <laughs> you know. You, you beer and grin and you, you force yourself and it's misery. And I mean, Nabach, you're already doing Torah, you're already doing mitzvot. And your whole Yiddishkeit, it's like, it's such a Rachmanus. You know, it's, it's painful to see and you see it till today. Those Jews who don't study Tanya, have no connection to the Hasidus. There's no refinement, there's no joy, elevation, inspiration, natural, you know, soul, a little soul, a little heart, a little feeling, a little connection to what you're doing. Don't be just, just a robot. And there's nothing sadder than someone who lives a Jewish life. And yet, he would rather be elsewhere. <laughs> it's almost, almost like he has no choice, and this is the way I grew up, and so I do it, I do it, and I'm going through the motions. It's just very sad. So he says, even when Mashiach will come, these earthy people, even when Mashiach will come, they're still going to be stuck. They're not going to be on the level that we were describing. For them, they still have to deal with negativity. They're still going to have, to them, they're still going to have to, it's a maturing process. They won't be able just to leap into the era of Mashiach, the way he's describing here, the esoteric. They will have to study Talmud, and they will have to still study the Mishnah to throw off the negative, because they're still attached to the earthiness, to the coarseness, to the crassness. They still have the darkness, and they still have... So they will still have to deal with it. But the, the Torah scholars, those who were steeped in Torah, and those who were egoless in times of exile, when Mashiach will come, they will have a true redemption, a spiritual redemption, a godly redemption. They will be living in a different universe. They will be elevated, inspired, illuminated, everything will have such clarity. The Yiddishkeit will be so clear, so joyful, so alive, so energetic, so vibrant. And those who were very earthy and had no connection to godliness in the times of exile, they didn't think about godliness, never made any movement to make it have any connection with godliness. It was just about responsibility and obligation and doing the right thing. It's wonderful. But they still have a lot of maturing to do and a, little, a lot of growing up to do. So they still will have to deal with the negative. They still will have to be engaged in the studying of the external part of the Torah to shake off the negativity. Can continue. They will therefore... They will therefore need to engage in Torah and Mishnah in order to weaken by their occupation with Torah the power of Sitra Afra that cleaves to them, so that it will not dominate them and cause them to sin. Thus it is written, and the sinner at the age of a hundred will be cursed. This refers to the sinners of the mixed multitude. So you have two parts. You have the mixed multitude, and then you have the, uh, the Jewish people themselves. The Jewish people themselves, there won't be any sin, there won't be any death. 
They'll be so alive, they'll be so plugged into the source of life, sin, death, they'll be beyond that. But there will be those who will still be connected to the death. So yes, Mashiach will come, it will change everything and it will affect everyone positively. So if a hundred-year-old person dies, you're going to say, ah, this little baitrik, this young little baitrik died. Only a hundred. <laughs> died so young. People are going to live into the hundreds. Mashiach will come, you know. So the era of Mashiach will affect and elevate everyone. But it says everyone will be lifted up to a different level. It says everyone will be lifted up. It says the Goyim will become like Misnagdim. Misnagdim will become like Hasidim. Hasidim will become like uh, Guti Yidin, which are, you know, great, great rabbis. A Guti Yidin will become like the Baal Shem Tev, And the Baal Shem Tev will be elevated to a level that we can't even, we can't even begin to imagine. To, be, to the infinite, to a level so beyond anything we can comprehend. Mashiach will be an elevation, universal elevation. Everyone is going to be uplifted. But everyone on their level will be an, uh, an uplift, an upgrade from where they were before. Each one will be an uplift. So for those who never studied Hasidus, Mashiach will come just to discover the world of Hasidus will be a tremendous upgrade. But they still have a lot of baggage that they have to work through. The Hasidim who studied Hasidus for the last 300 years, Mashiach will come. <laughs> It'll be as he describes here, as the Zohar describes here, we plugged into the tree of life and the whole occupation and the exclusively will be esoteric and the inner and the will be a whole different level. Sorry. Even with the arrival of the Messiah, there will be sinners among the mixed multitude, since the Sitra Akhra creeps to them. They will therefore require means by which to weaken it, so they will not sin. Nor will they need only the revealed aspects of the Torah in order to repel the Sitra Akhra. In addition, on the practical level, they will need the detailed rulings of prohibition and impurity more than the Jews. For the latter, nothing will occur that is ritually unfit, unpure, or forbidden, since there shall not befall any of the righteous. The era of Mashiach, all Jews will be at the level of the righteous. So it's interesting. He says, right now, this verse that Hashem protects, Hashem protects the righteous, that they shouldn't sin, Taisvis explains, it doesn't refer to every single case find cases that righteous people did sin. This refers to, specifically, to sins that involve eating, eating, to eat something that's not kosher. So Hashem will protect the righteous, even if it's not their fault. So technically, you can't hold, them, hold it against them. They simply didn't know. It was a mistake. But Hashem will protect them that they shouldn't even come to sin, even by mistake. Miraculously, God will protect them. Why will Hashem perform a miracle? If Hashem to go out of his way to perform miracles, Hashem doesn't like just to perform miracles. Why would Hashem go out of his way to perform miracles? When it comes to other things, other sins, if a person sins unintentionally, Hashem is not obligated to perform a miracle that even the tzaddik shouldn't sin. But when it comes to food, to eating, Hashem will protect the righteous. He shouldn't, God forbid, come to eat something they shouldn't be eating. Why? Because food has a particularly negative effect on a person. It doesn't matter what your intention is. That's why we're so careful what children eat. Well, what do we care what children eat? Children are not obligated in the mitzvah. 
So what do we care? Why, do, why be so careful? We're more careful about what children need, sometimes even adults. Why? Because you're affected by what you eat. You are what you eat. It doesn't matter what your intention is. Your intention is not. If I ate poison, well, it wasn't my intention. It's not my fault. Don't hold it against me. Yes, I won't hold it against you. But you ate the poison, it's going to kill you. It'll affect you negatively. It doesn't matter intention, not intention. Food is different. If I sinned and was unintentionally... Okay, it was unintentional, so I can't hold it against you. It's not the, not the end of the world. But if you eat something that's not kosher, something that's not kosher, it's not just the act of eating. The eating itself, it's like eating poison. For the soul, it's like eating poison. It's going to affect you negatively. When a person eats non-kosher, it affects your soul negatively. It dulls your senses. It has a tremendous negative effect on the person. So Hashem has to go out of His way, so to speak, and perform a miracle to make sure that the tzaddik should not come to eat non-kosher. But he says, when Mashiach will come, the Rebbe says here, this concept that Hashem will protect the righteous applies across the board. Not only when it comes to sins, matters of food, anything. Why the difference? Because again, once Mashiach will come, the world will reach perfection, the whole world will become perfect, the whole world will be plugged in and connected to the tree of life, the whole world will become holy and good. So therefore, Hashem will protect and make sure that the tzaddik can, will not even come, even unintentionally. It won't even be possible for him, for him to sin. Hashem will make sure that he shouldn't come to sin. So, therefore, they don't have to worry too much. They can spend their whole time and whole focus on studying the esoteric part of the Torah. And they'll know the rest of the Torah and Hashem will protect them. But the, the, those, the earthy people, the multitude of nations, they have to learn the laws very well. Otherwise, Hashem is not obligated to protect them. And then he adds, and this is the, this is the most important thing, this is also possible. It is also possible and indeed probable that the Jewish people will know all the fundamentals of the revealed plane of the Torah from the Timiyut of the Torah. Tim. As was the case for our father Abraham, peace be with him. The Gomorrah relates that Abraham filled the entire Torah even before it was given at Sinai. Now there are passages and commandments to which he could not possibly have related on a physical level. Inscribed on the tiny parchment scrolls within Tefillin, for example, are biblical passages which record the exodus from Egypt, a land to which his descendants had not yet been exiled. The mode of Abraham's performance of the commandments is as spiritual and esoteric as the altar readily explains in Torah or and the Gittari Torah. Right, so there's no way that Abraham could know about the exodus from Egypt. It never happened. So how did he know the whole Torah before it was given? Historically, all these things never even happened yet. So much of the Torah is associated with remembering the exodus from Egypt. There was no exodus. The Jews never went. It never happened. So how could he have possibly fulfilled the whole Torah before it was given? But the answer is that Abraham knew. He knew the Torah from the inner, from the spiritual, the spiritual meaning of Passover. There is the physical meaning of Passover. The physical meaning of Passover is associated with the historical event of the Jewish people leaving Egypt. But then there's the deeper, the esoteric. The esoteric is not dependent on the physical, the external events. It's something much deeper, and that's eternal. That's always applicable. So that's what Avram knew. So he knew the, the mitzvot from the deeper, from the esoteric part of the Torah. 
he knew about eating matzah and Pesach because of the deeper meaning of eating of matzah. What it means esoterically and spiritually and mystically. Can to finish, Abraham doesn't know. Yeah. It says when the angels came, that was Pesach. Yeah, we just read about it. What? Kept kosher. Abraham thus knew all the revealed aspects of Torah from its esoteric core. In the time to come, all Jews will know the Torah. So just like Abraham knew the Torah before it was given, before it was even possible of him to know it physically and externally, he only knew it from the esoteric, and from the esoteric he understood the mitzvot. So Mashiach will come, will know the whole Torah from just by studying and being occupied in the esoteric. They will therefore not need to occupy themselves with them, with the laws defining what is permitted or prohibited, pure or impure at all. At the time of the Second Temple, by contrast, although the scholars did not derive their sustenance from the illiterate, for they had their own fields and vineyards, they needed to be involved in these laws, and not only for their practical application, but because this is the main purpose of divine service, to weaken the power of the Sitra Akra and to elevate the sparks of holiness by means of Torah study and worship, as is explained elsewhere. After the above words of truth, it will be possible to clearly understand the earlier quoted passage from Rayani and Mahama, which spoke of the tree of good and evil, prohibition and permission, meaning Kalipat Noga, which is the mainstay of this world. As is written in its Chaim, at the moment that the Mashiach arrives, the dominant influence in this material world is Kalipat Noga, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. After his arrival, however, this dominion will cease and man's divine service will be directed not to extracting the sparks of holiness hidden in the material world, but bringing about ever higher supernal unions as explained above. This will suffice for the discernment. Wow, what a powerful letter. Very, uh, very long letter. The whole thing, I mean, what we're aiming for over here is that where they say we're not going to have to worry about, like, obeying uh, it, we'll be living in a consciousness of mitzvotsim, okay? So we're not going to have to think about it. It's just going to be a natural, blissful state that's going to be brought about by the illumination that's given to us when the, when the uh, Mashiach comes. So we're going to be able to just do these things without having to think about it. You just know it. Well, uh, well. Intuitively. Well, there's two, there's, yeah, you'll know it intuitively. You know what to do. You'll know what to That's do. Right. You'll make a decision to do it, Imagine but you know what that. to do. You'll know what to do. You'll, instinctively, you'll know. You know, if a person had no ego and no evil inclination, you would instinctively, you would know what's right. You would know what's godly, what Hashem wants. That's right. You know, the, it was a story with the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe. And it was a whole, the Russian, the Tsar, the Russian Tsar brought together, the government brought together the rabbis. And they wanted to make certain enactments, certain rules and laws, how to certify a rabbi, that a rabbi has to be learned, he also has to be diversity educated, and they wanted to govern, license rabbis. And the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe was very adamantly against it. And he sacrificed himself. I mean, they arrested him. They put him in house arrest. He defied the government. He defied the czar. And there were certain things that wasn't black and white. It wasn't against halacha. Certain things, why not? Why shouldn't the rabbi 
you know, be knowledgeable about certain things. Why? Why? And the Rebbe Rashab said, no, we're not going to allow the Russian government, the Tsar, to mix in, to decide who is a rabbi, who is not a rabbi, and we're ready to sacrifice our lives for this. And when he said this, he fainted. And it was his opposition. Most rabbis were ready to go along with the program. But because he was so opposed, and he was ready, and they put him at the house arrest, and he was ready to sacrifice himself, that he swayed all the rabbis, and they all agreed with him, and the whole thing was abolished. The whole scheme was abolished. But when he, when he proposed this opposition, Rab Chaim, Chaim Briska, the famous Goyen, Rab Chaim Briska went into the Rebbe Rashab and he says, Rebbe, and what are you basing it on? Show me a source that says that there's something wrong with this program. All the rabbis are we in agreement. It's not so terrible. Mm. You're just basing it on your instinct. Mm. The Rebbe says, yes. <laughs> because when you're a Rebbe, you and you're egoless, and you're so connected and plugged in with Hashem, like Avram Avinu, instinctively, he knew the whole Torah. You're tune with Hashem, so you just know, you know, this smells right, it sounds good, technically I can't find anything wrong with it, but it's not coming from a good place, it's not godly, it's not right, it's not correct, it's not what Hashem wants, it's not coming from a kosher place, it sounds good, superficially. So when you are so in tune and so in touch, when you have that clarity and there's no ego, there's no static, and there's no interruption, your instinct is on target. So instinctively, when Mashiach will come, we're going to know right, wrong, what's proper, what's not proper. You'll just know it. Just like Avram. That's what exactly what he's saying. I think that the Mashiach, for all of us, uh, are events that occur. And we suddenly become enlightened about something in all of our work. We suddenly realize something is right and we move forward on it. And it works because we're still living in this life. But the world that you're talking about, we don't know what it's going to be like. It, it, it sounds so uninteresting. There's nothing to achieve, nothing to Oh, what a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. But that's, um, that's exactly not the way he's describing it. He says, no, Mashiach will come, life begins. You know, a tzaddik is someone who no longer has any inner conflict with his negativity. We've seen a tzaddik, the Rebbe. You never met a person who's more alive. On the contrary, now we're, we're, we're progressing. It's, it's like, it's like a, on, on a... On a, on a level of a, a tortoise or a turtle, we make small steps and one step back and two steps forward and we're struggling and everything is such a struggle and it's so difficult and every baby step we take forward is such an immense struggle and such an immense test. Imagine when you grow up and you start running. You're growing in leaps and bounds. You're not dealing anymore with negativity. Mashiach will come. Everything is going to be fast-paced. It's like we're going to wake up. And then we're going to start living. 
and then we're going to start growing. I mean, right now we're barely, we're barely tapping into how much of our brains do we use? Those who use it? 4%? Maybe we get lucky, don't have to use any of it. Einstein, Einstein, how Einstein the genius used what, 8%? Imagine a world that you're using 100% of your brain. You're operating on all cylinders. Right now, we're like in a coma. We're like barely alive. It's like we barely move. But if we're operating on 100% of our brain, would there still be obstacles to overcome? The, that's what he's saying. The obstacles won't be we're dealing with negativity. Right now, we have to deal with negativity. The Rebbe gave a beautiful analogy. When they first send the space, the first spaceship, outer space, the Rebbe says everything the Baal Tov taught us, everything a Jew sees or hears, is a lesson in our divine service. What's the great lesson? Everyone was so excited that this breakthrough we're sending spaceships to outer space. Look how a spaceship operates. Very interesting. You're trying to get the spaceship to leave the atmosphere. So what do you do? You add this huge appendage that's four times the size of the spaceship. It's so heavy, filled with fuel. Isn't it counterproductive? You're trying to leave the atmosphere, so what do you do? You add all this tremendous weight? But, the, but that's the pressure. That's what provides the pressure and the power that boosts the, the rocket, the, 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 the spaceship outside, out, out of the atmosphere. What happens then? Once the spaceship leaves the atmosphere, it drops the rocket, it drops the fuel tanks, and then it starts flying in space. And then it goes millions of miles. It goes, I mean, it goes so quickly. The Rebbe says that's the difference between the average person and the tzaddik. We have to deal with negativity. Why did God make life so difficult for us? He wants us to do the right thing. He gives us a Torah and tells us to be moral and to be ethical and to be spiritual and do the right thing. And then he makes it so difficult. We have conflicts from within and from without. But this is the fuel that gets us moving. Without this friction, without this conflict, without these tests, without this, we would be dead. We're not alive. This is what makes us alive. We overcome. We struggle. We have to dig deeper. We have to effort. And then we come alive. But what happens once you're already flying? You don't need these tests. You don't need this negativity anymore. Once you already reach outer space, you just, it's infinite. Space is, you can go and go and go. So the tzaddik is so alive. The tzaddik who no longer has to struggle with his evil inclination, he is the most alive. But he's growing from strength to strength. God is infinite. So no matter how much you accomplish, no matter how much you... You know, it's like the, the, the genius, the Nobel Prize winner, who has accomplished the most, he will tell you that he knows nothing. And there's so much to learn. Yes. He's so excited. Yes. So Mashiach will come. You know what kind of struggle it is? The struggle will be to, to grasp even more and to understand even more and to go even deeper and to go deeper and deeper. You come so alive. You're so excited. You're thrilled. You relish every moment the discovery and you discover a breakthrough and a bigger breakthrough and an even a greater breakthrough. But you're not dealing with negativity. You're dealing with breakthroughs upon breakthroughs, upon breakthroughs. So Mashiach will come, we, we come alive for the very, almost as if for the very first time. Right now we're like in slow motion. You know, the, there was a, there were two, 
turtles who crashed into each other. And behind them were the two tortoises. The police come and they ask the, ask the tortoise, what happened? So the tortoise says, I don't know, it all happened so fast. <laughs> so right now we're like, we're like, we're like advancing at a snail's pace till we make a move, until we lift a pinky, until we change something in our lives. It's like, it's like anyone, is so impa- you get so impatient, but when Mashiach will come, everything will speed up. Right now we're in the Pentium age, everything is speeding up, everything is changed. Well, it used to take 20, 200 years, now it, happens in the two, it used to happen in two years, now it's happening in two minutes, in two days. Everything is happening so quickly, everything that, is fast forward. There's a period of time where, where everything is happening in a second, and that second there'll be something to overcome. There will be, it has to be a negativity because you'll need to overcome something. Not negativity. Negative, uh, you have a new mountain to climb. It's not negative. Right. You, have a, you have, a new st- have a new viewpoint. You have a new view. Right. And now you discover there's a new peak to climb. There's a new mountain to climb, to conquer. Yes. It's not negative at all. It's positive. It's even greater positive. Yeah, but it's even greater positive. Not everything is solved. That's the whole point. Yeah, you have a new, going new, a, a new mountain to climb, a new horizon to climb. But, that, so but, but I'm dealing with positive. I'm not dealing with negative. It's a struggle. But I'm not dealing with negative. I'm dealing with good, even better, even deeper, even better. What a world. A world where we're operating 100% in capacity, 100% capacity. You know, there are many people we know, we wonder to ourselves, you know, if I can only meet this person once he grows up. Because <laughs> they never really develop their potential. They're like half asleep. And, you know, they, they never really matured. Imagine if they were operating on all cylinders and they were really developed. Wow, it would be wonderful. Life will begin. Life begin. Mashiach will come. It will be a pleasure. Life will begin. We'll be so alive. We'll be so vibrant. We haven't even scratched the surface. Everything that we know today, we haven't even scratched the surface of the surface. There's so much infinite depth to discover and to learn and to grow. Those who worry about peak, peak this and peak oil this and peak this is a bunch of fools. We haven't even scratched the surface. Hashem placed so much potential in this world, so much infinite potential, we haven't even scratched the surface of the surface. And what's happening is that everything, like you say, is growing and it's growing exponentially and it's all coming together and it's fast-forwarding and it's facilitating. The Rebbe says, open your eyes, you can see we're living in the Messianic era. It's all unfolding before our eyes. Everything is, is hurtling forward. We're living in very special times, very exciting times. Any moment, it's imminent. Any second Mashiach is going to come, we'll reach that critical mass when everything will come together. All the sacrifice, and all the good deeds, and all the sweat and the toil will all come together and the light will switch on and all of a sudden we'll wake up from our dream or our nightmare called exile and the world will become a Garden of Eden the way it once was and the way it, it, it inevitably will become imminently in any moment, literally, in the next class. Please God, will be given by the Alter Rebbe himself. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com